Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers. Great to have you with us. hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I am so happy to welcome you to the show today. I've got a great show lined up for you. I'm really happy and delighted and humbled that so many people are listening to the show live and in the archives and in the iTunes podcast channel. Um, So thank you for tuning in. I'm really grateful and I hope you're enjoying the interviews because I really am. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I'm interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, originality. And this show aims to bring you models of people who embody those qualities. Something I've been thinking a lot about over the last few weeks, and I just want to put it out there, and that is this. Every spiritual act is an act of defiance in a materialistic world. So that's my thought of the day. Um, so please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independentartistthinkers, and the chat room's open, so say hello. Also, I want to let you know that these podcasts are now available on Blueberry and on Stitcher, as well as on the iTunes podcast channel, There are a lot of ways to listen. I think Blurberry and Stitcher and the iTunes podcast channel are a little better than Blog Talk Radio. Unfortunately, Blog Talk Radio has way too many ads. So um, Blueberry is B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. So you can find Tracy L. Flatten podcasts and the Independent Artists and Thinkers show on um, those uh, internet venues also. Um, Keep tuning in. Um, to the Blog Talk Radio page and to the website, which is independentartistinkers.com, to find out who will be on the show. I am so delighted and honored and happy today to have my wonderful, beautiful, amazing stepdaughter, Julia Howard, on to talk about the journey of becoming a doctor. Julia Howard is a New York native who just finished her first year at a U.S. osteopathic medical school somewhere in the desert. She has a background in public health, and she hopes to treat chronic diseases through lifestyle changes and community support. How cool is that? Additionally, she has an interest in global health and emerging infections, as well as psychiatry. 
In between test taking and studying, she likes to run and hike, cook, and pet any dog who lets her get close. You can reach her, um, she has a Gmail address, and that's julia.mi.howard at gmail.com. And she's also on Instagram, jmhoward428. Julia, hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being on. Hi. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so happy you're home and you can do this interview. Me too. I'm excited. So here's my usual opening question for my guests because it situates listeners into who you are and what you're about. It's a big question, so don't get overwhelmed. Just do what you need to with it. Take it and run with it. So it's a multi-part question. (laughs) That is, how did you begin your journey and what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have? When did you know you were going to be a doctor? Was medicine a major presence in your home when you were growing up? What did you think you would be? Tell me about your childhood and lead up to now. <laughs> that is a big question. Yeah. Um, so I definitely did not grow up around medicine at all. Um, but I did grow up in a household where you really pick a career because it's something that you feel passionate about. Um, my dad is an artist. Um, my mom is a writer. You're a writer. So I grew up around people who weren't doing corporate jobs. They mm-hmm. weren't just making a paycheck. Um, so that was my background in terms of that. And then I went to Fieldston, which is the ethical culture Fieldston school, where ethics were a part of our curriculum starting at the age of four. So I grew up um, always being told that you have to think about the community at large and people who are less fortunate and um, think about ways to improve their lives. So I had all these things growing up. And then um, my junior and senior year of high school, I was part of the Community Service Advisory Board, which is this program at Fieldston where about, um, I think it was about 18 kids, uh, we picked a community partner out in the Bronx. And we uh, would go every Thursday and offer our community service. Um, So we picked uh, Idelson, which is a home for kids who are considered too damaged to enter the foster care system. So it was kids who had been betrayed by parents, aunts and uncles. They'd been through the pretty much the worst things you can imagine. Um, and we went in once a week, played with these kids. But when uh, you grow up without having any family support or support in general, um, it's really hard to form a relationship. So I kind of walked away from this experience feeling like I wasn't doing enough. Um, so I took that to college. I got involved in a lot of teaching. Um, for I went to college in Baltimore, so a lot of to John Hopkins. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> a lot of um, teaching inner city Baltimore children, and I found it to be one of the most frustrating experiences I'd ever had because there was no infrastructure. So yes, you do tutor these kids six hours a week, but then they go home and there's no support for growth at all. Um, and there's a lot of um, problems with the Baltimore City public schooling system, which is a, an entirely different thing. But um, it was a frustrating experience. So from there, um, I kind of decided uh, teaching wasn't for me um, and that maybe I could use this idea of wanting to do more and look to medicine. So that's how it all started. And you got a master's? 
I got a master's um, in immunology, um, and I worked, uh, had a few clinical research jobs. I um, worked on a trial looking at patients with chronic kidney disease, and we looked at a lot of data points looking to see if we could find predictors for um, chronic heart failure in these patients, because there's a link between the two. So we were oh, trying to see, yeah, we were trying to see what specific factors might increase the risk more. Um, after that, uh, I worked in a, on a pediatric mental health study, um, and we were trying to figure out how to make mental health a topic that's talked about at a primary care visit, because it's often overlooked. You know, you take blood pressure, you check for scoliosis, for cranial nerves, but you don't really ask about mental health. Like, are you happy? Are you counting how many steps you walk through the hallway? Are you knocking on the door 12 times before you enter? That kind of thing. Exactly. And yeah, it's overlooked. And then behavioral problems, um, possible learning issues. Um, it's often just breezed over. So we were trying to figure out um, a way to implement a survey and see if, if these kids answered the survey about these questions beforehand if that might bring these topics to the forefront of the visit. So I thought that was really interesting because, um, well, going back to my kidney disease uh, trial, one of the things I saw was that um, we were working with a large population that was very poor. Um, so they come in, they get dialysis twice a week, and then they would, I'd see them waiting to be picked up and they'd be eating a Big Mac. It's kind of like this juxtaposition of, you know, you're trying to help them, but then they're... Poor nutrition. Poor nutrition, yeah. And um, it's a lot of that is community issues because... Um, sorry, I'm going way off tangent. No, but, go, go ahead. Keep going. It's interesting. <laughs> uh, there's um, this whole issue of um, there's not fresh food available in a lot of these neighborhoods in Baltimore. So... They don't. They have, call that a food desert. Exactly. So they don't have the option of going to the store and buying an apple. They have the option of Cheetos or a Big Mac. Um, oh. So then they wonder why they're sick, or they don't know. <laughs> they don't have the information. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just part of the way that their community was built. Um, so a lot of public health now is looking at how we can change the community to, you know promote health changes for the individuals living in that community, um, which I think is really important. But that public health, that, sorry, the pediatric mental health trial I did was the first um, time that I really thought about the fact that there were ways to approach patient care um, at the actual visit so that you could possibly promote these health changes afterwards and in a way that's beyond just writing a medication, beyond go get dialysis but promoting a way that they carry these changes with them after the visit. That's cool. Which is really important. Is that a good segue? Because you and I had talked last night and you want to talk about, um, which I think is fascinating that you're at a DO school. You're going to be an osteopathic doctor. Yeah. So what is osteopathic medicine? How does it differ from traditional allopathic medicine? What are the ideals of osteopathic medicine? Because a lot of people don't know. So can you talk about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, osteopathic medicine is uh, slightly newer, I would say a lot newer. Um, it's been around for over 100 years, 
but it's built on um, the main premise that the body can heal itself. Um, that's one of the main tenets. And then that the body, that health is a culmination of uh, mind, body, and spirit. Um, I, I second that emotion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is really important because um, essentially you want to address all those components at the visit, and then you want to um, make a plan with your patient so that you're not just writing a medication, but that they're going to adopt um, maybe exercising more, uh, cutting down on sodium, cutting down on fast food, um, that sort of thing. Uh, so that's one of the main reasons that I decided that osteopathic medicine would be a better fit. And there's also osteopathic manipulation, right. which um, I just have to, I always give personal stories um, as uh, to tell how I benefited when one of my guests is on. So um, I've had an issue, and you started working with me the last few days, and I've, I've had some improvement. In fact, I've had immediately after you do the manipulation, I have a lot of improvement. So I thought right. that was interesting. So do you want to talk about the manipulation? Yeah, of course. Um, so the, the manipulation kind of ties into this idea of balancing the body. Um, so we do a lot of... Uh, realignment essentially and it uh, ties into not just musculoskeletal things but also um, we can work with nerves and um, rebalancing different inputs um, and it's uh, really interesting learning it uh, we are in this giant room all 200 people in my class and we have <laughs> a different partner every week and you're at a table and it's you're taught by these people who have been practicing this every day of their lives. Um, and it's uh, definitely a skill that you have to work on a lot to get better. Um, but You can practice on me anytime. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. <laughs> but um, it's, it's been really fascinating learning. And there are parts of it where you kind of wonder, like, is this magic? Is it <laughs> medicine? But I've had, uh, I was telling you, uh, I had a rib that was out of place. And um, one of the doctors who I work with um, did a worked on it for one minute, and immediately afterwards I could breathe again, and I didn't even realize that I had a problem. Um, wow! <laughs> so they they can really do a lot in terms of I don't want to say fixing, but rebalancing you, and you you do notice a difference. What I've been surprised at is that it's much it seems much gentler than chiropractic yeah. and it seems much more uh mindful or something i'm trying to think of the right word but like when my you've been where you've done my sacrum a couple times and every time it wasn't a big crack you use like this energy the muscle energy from my thigh or something it was very weird <laughs> but all of a sudden my sacrum's straight right yeah um we we like to say that it's very targeted mm -hmm. so um we muscle energy is one technique that I tried, um, and you're using their body essentially to pull things back into alignment. So, whereas I've never gotten the chiropractic treatment, but I think that's a little more kind of just pop what you can. I think it's pop what you can, <laughs> and sometimes it works really well. But I, I really like when she started doing the osteopathic manipulation. I really liked it. Yeah, yeah, I like it too. And we do have a popping technique um 
it's called a high velocity low amplitude and when you do that um you kind of you take the dysfunction as we call it to the exact barrier and then uh, you have the patient breathe in and out and then it's a quick movement but it's very targeted because you're set up exactly at that barrier so you can't break someone's neck Accidentally. Theoretically. Yeah, lose, lose more med students that way. <laughs> They're learning on each other. Exactly. <laughs> we only lost four med students this year learning that technique. Yeah, luckily no major injuries. <laughs> so what would you say are the ideals of osteopathic medicine? Um, so definitely uh, the idea that uh, health is mind, body, and spirit, um, and that the body is capable of self-healing. And we try to, um, that's, Kind of the point of the osteopathic medicine is that you're using the body to rebalance your own body. Um, so, yeah, we really try to do that. And I think ideally the goal is, um, you know, there's a place for medicine, uh, but the idea is using medicine, so pills, <laughs> whatever, surgery. surgery, in addition, using these osteopathic techniques for support because, um, you know, we're taught all the time that, so we kind of hear two stories in this class about these patients who have seen five specialists. They had this problem for three years and they see an osteopathic doctor and he works on them for five minutes and they're fixed. So, well, that's the, that's the experience I'm having with the issue you're working on. I saw a doctor, did all these tests, no help, no help. He wanted me to do more tests. I was like, no, thank you. And then you started fixing it, and I had more relief than I've had in a few years. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the one spectrum. Um, and it's awesome that yeah, it's awesome. it works like that. Love it. <laughs> yeah. But then um, on the other side, there are – we have a list of contraindications where – you absolutely cannot do this technique because you're going to make it worse. And then we're often taught that um, it should play a supportive role, not the main role. And it just really depends on what the issue is. Yeah, I guess if I had an appendix that was about to rupture, I'd want a surgeon right. to take it out, not an not an osteopath to like you know use muscle energy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or if you have a broken bone, you need to get that set. We're not going to be fiddling with that. Yeah. Or if you have cancer, you need to see an oncologist and get chemo. We're not going to be trying anything. <laughs> so you also talked earlier about an interest in mental health. Do so you think there's yeah. a way that osteopathic medicine can promote good mental health? Um, I think so. So uh, one of the things that I've learned since I've come to school is that um, every year 400 physicians commit suicide, which is... Um, my class is about 225, so that's almost two medical classes. Wow. So that's a lot. So um, there's really been a big push recently because this is something that people don't really like to talk about. Um, <laughs> so there's been a big push recently of A, raising awareness, and then B, addressing um, ways to promote mental health. So why are doctors doing this? Why are they, you think, you know, look, I've watched you. This was hard to get into medical school. Medical school is unbelievably hard. So you go through all this and then you are creating what basically should be a pretty good life for yourself with a fulfilling career that's pay, you're paid well. You get to interact with people, you know, I guess unless you're a radiologist. <laughs> um, but why then after all this would a, would a doctor go commit suicide? I think uh, it's a 
big factor of things. Um, you know, your residency, so you go through residency and, that you know, they just, it used to be that you work more hours, but now the cap is 80. And this oh, that's has, all. This, <laughs> this has enraged a lot of people because they think that you're being soft on the residents if you only allow them to work 80 hours a week. So <laughs> that's kind of the environment you're going into. And on top of that, um, I think it's lessening now, but you, there are attending physicians who are, that's the top of the hierarchy when you're a resident, who um, will really yell at you. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. That's probably the nicest way I could say it. <laughs> But you're, so you enter this environment of, um, you're being beaten up and overworked and abused. Exactly. And then on top of that, from the patient side, uh, I've heard it can be really frustrating. And that's what I saw in my experience, that you're doing all this and then, you know, your patient's not doing their part to promote their health. Uh, so there's that. And then on top of that, um, maybe you lose a patient and that's what kind of sends you over the edge, but it's, I think it's the combination of all these factors. And then, uh, so now they're really emphasizing that you have to take care of yourself. Otherwise, you can't take care of other people at your best ability. But I think that's really good. Um, I did not go to nearly so rigorous a school. I went to creative writing graduate school, but there, you know, we talked about, because a lot of writers, suicide's an occupational hazard for writers, right. for sure. But we're depressed and we like to drink, so it's a bad combination. <laughs> exactly. You get sad people drinking, you know, you're going to get one. But I'm surprised, yeah. a little bit surprised about doctors. Yeah. I think... So uh, it comes down, you think, to pressure and stress? Is it self-imposed plus the external pressure? Yeah. I think there's a certain personality type that goes into medicine, too. Um I don't think I fall into it. <laughs> Of course I do, but it's like a, <laughs> a very... Someone is a bitch. <laughs> a very, um, a bit of like a control freak type A personality often goes into medicine. Um, and I think it's that combination that uh, can be not good. Um, right, because life doesn't always go according to plan. Exactly. And, you know, you... Say you're working with a patient and you did everything right, sometimes the right outcome doesn't happen, even though mm -hmm. you're doing everything you can. Um, and I think that is probably something that's really hard. Well, years ago, I was a healer, a hands-on healer, as you know. And one of the reasons I left is because um, healing isn't curing. Right. And so with some people, when I work some clients, I could get a miraculous result. And with others, I'm standing by... A hospital bed, you know, keeping a vigil for someone dying in agony. Right. I didn't want, want to deal with that, among other things. So <laughs> I'm sure that must be even harder on a doctor because by the time you're, you've got that patient, it's been seven, eight, nine years of intensive education. Yeah, I, I think that's a big thing about it too. And then, um, you know, it depends on what specialty you go to, but in primary care, especially, you're working with these patients for even longer, maybe from the time they're 20 until they're, well, you wouldn't be practicing this long, but until you retire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe they come in every time and it's the same problem, high cholesterol, um, diabetes, 
high blood pressure and you're saying the same things over and over again. Uh, so I think that's part of it too is that you start to sound like a broken record. Um, and that's why I think it's really important to promote community support too because um, they're more likely to uh, follow through with whatever plan you've created for them if their community allows for that. I think that's important. So in Baltimore, in the inner city, if you could get a group in the inner city interested in having a farmer's market come in yeah. or, you know, getting some street corner turned into an actual grocery store instead of a bodega or a fast food joint, then that would support your patients. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there were a lot of changes in Baltimore even when I was there. So, for example, um, they got bike paths put in so people could start biking around instead of having to drive. Um, and sidewalks, too. There weren't sidewalks in a lot of these neighborhoods. So, you know, now there are sidewalks so that you can walk places. And uh, there was playground put in so kids can play outside, um, that sort of stuff. Because before, you know, you're not going to send your kid out if it's not safe for them to... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so... Changes like that, and then on top of that, there's a lot of programs that um, Hopkins did create on promoting uh, community health. I can't remember um, the names of them now, but uh, there was one where um, it was for a high school girl, and uh, it was an after-school program once a week where you learned about uh, healthy eating, and then they made you uh, keep a food diary and an exercise log. Wow. So you, you have this support system, mm -hmm. too. So. Right, because your peers are doing it. Exactly. Well, let's go back to the doctors. Um, what are some of the things you do to take care of yourself? And, like, what are you going to do when you're, you know, a young resident and or an intern and you kill someone? Right. How are you going to get yourself through that? Uh, I think you probably don't know exactly what you're going to do until the time comes. Um, in the meantime, I try to run a lot. Um, I to get enough sleep it's important um i have a mentor and he told me that he wouldn't cheer for me at graduation unless i started getting six hours of sleep every single night <laughs> six <laughs> good well i know through the sometimes through the exam period you're only getting four hours right i i've uh, kind of been stepping away from that more and <laughs> really trying to uh, listen to his advice because it is important um it's definitely important and then uh, in terms of losing a patient, uh, I don't quite know what that's going to be like. Oh, one thing you and I talked about was you said that you actually have courses on how not to be an asshole to your patient. <laughs> I'm going to say it very plainly. Um, so, uh, like, um, like, what do you do if your patient throws urine at you? What do you say when your patient survives a car accident and his wife and kid don't? Right. So we do a lot of practice simulations in these cases because, you know, how, how do you tell someone that their husband and daughter died in a car accident? You know, that's possibly yeah. the worst news that you can hear. Um, yeah, and, that's worst. Yeah, I think so. And so we uh, practice having these conversations um, and uh, it's, it's hard, and I um, one of the things I found is that, you know, on a test when they give you this scenario, it's really more of an intuitive thing. Um, mm -hmm. I like I don't know if there's really a way that you can 
study for that until you're in that position. Um, well, I'm sure that if the, if the doctor is in any way sensitive and empathic, if they're giving that news, they're going to go home that night and feel, or the next day and feel pretty crappy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, yeah, we talk a lot about, um, I go to a fairly religious school, so we talk about the time and the place for bringing religion into these conversations, too, um, which I find pretty interesting because I'm not particularly religious myself, but um, you're not supposed to bring it up unless the patient does, and mm -hmm. then you're only supposed to um, follow that avenue if you're comfortable with it, which wasn't something I'd really thought about before. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was uh, interesting as well. What are some of the other interesting things you've learned this year? Um, so we, so far we've taken uh, biochem, anatomy, uh, physiology, um, psychology, and uh, neuroscience. And uh, some of the things that you learn in neuroscience are just really cool. Um, for example, uh, we look a lot at what happens if you get a brain injury in this one specific spot? What are your symptoms going to be? And um, there's a lot of intricacies here. Uh, and so it's it's really like putting together a puzzle piece, uh, pieces of a puzzle. Um, and one thing I thought was really fascinating was that if you injured the um, primary somatomotor cortex, which is you want to move your arm to shake someone's hand, that's what does it. If you're walking, it's the primary somatomotor cortex that does mm -hmm. all voluntary motion. But um, so if you have a lesion here and it affects the nerves going from this part of the cortex to your face, you're not going to be able to smile on, on command. And it also extends to, um, you know, like socially you'll voluntarily smile at someone maybe to offer some comfort or as a friendly gesture. You can't do that. But if someone tells a joke and you laugh naturally, you can do that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and it's because there's a different area of the brain that controls facial expression in response to emotion. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of things like that, and we really don't know all that much about the brain. Um, so I think every year it gets more and more fascinating. Well, I'm going to use this as a moment to pause. I have a 30-second commercial for my books. So we'll do a thir the 30-second commercial. We'll be right back to ask Julia Howard, soon to be a doctor in a few years, more questions about the journey of becoming a doctor. When you find an author you love, you read everything they publish. International best-selling author Tracy L. Slatton is one of those writers. Her book Immortal is a rags-to-riches-to-burnt-at-the-stake story of an orphan boy in Renaissance Florence. Broken is the story of a fallen angel in Nazi-occupied Paris and her award-winning romantic paranormal dystopian after-book series. Also, her bittersweet sci-fi romantic comedy, The Love of My Other Life. Read one and you will be hooked. Find all of her books at TracyLSlatton.com. Oh, I just want to say, uh, fall in my the first book of the after series is on sale for a few days for ninety nine cents. So, um, all right. So back to you. What are some of the more of the what are some of the more important points you've learned along the way of getting into medical school and being in medical school? <laughs> uh, so getting in, 
is definitely hard. Uh, I came from Hopkins where, you know, most kids who apply to medical school, I won't say most, but um, a large portion of kids who go to medical school go to Stanford, Harvard, Hopkins, you know, really like top 10 medical schools. Um, and these kids all have 3.9 GPA, MCAT of, um, I don't know, 37, which uh, for reference, um, the average MCAT score for kids getting into med medical school is 30, and overall I think it's 25 or 26. So these are people who are really top 1%. And then at Hopkins, the average graduating GPA is a 3.2. So these are also the kids who are the top of their class at Hopkins. Um, so I um, did not have those. <laughs> and uh, I went to my pre-med office um, and they kind of said like, I don't think this is gonna work out for you. Really? Yeah. And um, I... Uh, so you had to persevere? Yeah, so definitely had to persevere um, and like really commit to raising my GPA. Um, and uh, also I didn't do badly, I feel like I should say that, but <laughs> uh, I wasn't at the top. Um, and uh, finally I found this one advisor and she was like, I find this really refreshing that you're not, you know, so gung-ho on getting into these top schools. Um, and so I worked with her for the rest of the time and uh, we really made a, targeted plan of what schools to apply to um, and then when you applied you got into a lot yeah so it it works out and uh, I think if you really approach it and work on making the best application you can you do have a good shot of getting into medical school and um, I've talked to a whole bunch of people at my school and at other schools who were told you're not going to get into medical school it seems to be like this they're thing. all told, really? They're told, you're told you're, you can't get in, don't bother? Yeah, because um, getting into medical school now is really competitive. It's so hard. <laughs> I, most schools have below a 5% acceptance rate. Whoa. So, um, you know, they, there's this idea that you have to have the absolute perfect record to get in. Um, and I think a lot of schools are kind of bored of taking these applicants. Um, so if anyone is applying to medical school, <laughs> there's some encouragement. Don't give up. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay to be a little different. Yeah, it's okay to be different. And uh, there's ways to enhance your uh, record. Um, I got a master's, for example. I uh, published a paper, um, got a lot of research experience, and... Uh, Yep, let a monkey loose. Let a monkey loose. <laughs> <laughs> let a monkey loose. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of ways to do it. Because um, I know even, like, friends I have who are at top 25 med schools, they were also told that you're not getting in. So it's, it's a crazy thing that's been happening. <laughs> and what have you learned this first year? Um, so first year... Mm -hmm. Uh, so before the summer before medical school, everyone says don't study at all, like you just can't. And uh, I think that's probably one of the best advice pieces of advice you can get because you come in and in the first week of biochem, I learned everything I learned in biochem in undergrad. Wow. <laughs> uh, and 
there's no way that you can prepare yourself like for that. Um, for the amount of information. For the amount of information. And people had told me, but you don't quite get it until <laughs> you're there. Um, so one of the things that people said was that it's like trying to drink water out of a fire hose. Um, another person told me it's like trying to drink water from Niagara Falls, which <laughs> I think is a bit too much of an exaggeration, but it's the sheer amount of information that's being thrown at you is insane. <laughs> so uh, with that, um, definitely time management. Um, we have many exams. Uh, at least one per week sometimes, but often You had, two what, or three. 68 this year, 68 right? 68 exams first year. That's unbelievable. <laughs> but you have more next year, right? I'm not sure, actually. I'm hoping okay. not. Okay. <laughs> um, but you you don't really get a break. Um, so it's not... In undergrad, often, like, you would take one exam per week, and then, you know, you can do fun things on the weekend. You could take a night off after the exam, but... Um, you can't do that. <laughs> it's really um, go, 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 go. So uh, trying to think if I have a strategy for how I did it. Um, I think uh, one of the biggest things is to study smarter, not harder. So that was something I adopted um, more as I went along and then finding uh, what study study strategy works for you because in undergrad I wrote out all my notes made a really pretty study guide um, that I would study off of but you just don't have time for that and it's not efficient um, so finding ways to be as efficient as possible and if you only have two hours to study um, really making goals for yourself about what you're going to accomplish during that time that's cool yeah <laughs> you've gotten very organized very organized wow <laughs> What are your goals for the future? Uh, well, I would like to get into a residency program. Um, that's definitely one. Is there a chance you wouldn't? Um, a slim chance. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, most, um, if you do well in school and pass your boards, you're pretty much going to get into a residency program, maybe not the one you want. Um, you really more have issues if maybe you fail a class and you have to repeat it. Um, if you have a cheating record on your transcript, if you fail a rotation, um, maybe you have to retake the boards, that kind of thing. That's when you run into problems. But it's more like um, maybe you wanted to go into neurosurgery and you only applied to that even though your records didn't really match up with that mm. um so if you people in that position would more want to say like okay i'll go into primary care or something else <laughs> and so your first goal is to get into or get into a residency yeah there's that um i'd like to have a family uh so that's a goal on the horizon um that's really hard when you're in medical school, of course, and then, you know, in class we're learning all the time about um, women having trouble uh, having kids after a certain age, so um, that's definitely something that I've talked a lot with my female peers on, and it's um, definitely something that a lot of us think about.
But I think women are having babies later and later, aren't they? Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Um, yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a coin toss, I guess, after a certain age. Yeah, exactly. But I have um, older female physicians that I've talked to, and they they always say, like, it's all going to work out. Um, it'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's that. Uh, like, where do you see yourself in five years, ten years, twenty years? I know that this may be impossible. Yeah. Um, well, part of the thing with uh, matching residency is that you... So you apply to all these places, and then wherever you interview, you would rank those programs, and then they rank all the applicants that they've interviewed, and it goes into this computer system, and there's some algorithm, and you match at the place that ranked you highest, um, and they get who they ranked highest, but don't quite know how it works. Um, so you don't really have that much uh, choice. Uh, often people do match their top places. Um, so, so do they advise you to like have three top places or have five top? Well, how do they advise you? Uh, I'm not sure how much they do. Um, you know, people pick different residencies for different reasons. Um, talking to people who just matched, uh, fourth year students at my school, um, they were, I talked to, uh, two people, they were married, um, or getting married. So they also have a couples match. So mm -hmm. if you have a partner, you enter the match together. Um, they were both trying to get a psych residency and, uh, she was from LA, he was from New York. And they said that they did not want to stay in the center of the country. They wanted to be on the coast. And then they ended up, um, both interviewing at U of A and, loving it, wow. even though that was exactly what they didn't want. Um, so their advice was really more to follow your, which program you think is a good fit. But I know other people say you want to pick on location where you want to live. So mm -hmm. I don't know. We'll see what happens. And do you apply for different residencies? Like I know you have a couple of different interests. Would you apply to both peds and psychiatry or how would it work? Would you have to choose at that point? I think at that point you have to to choose. And I know you're president of your pediatrics club at your school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so uh, so we we also had some pediatric, um, uh, I guess they're residents now, they had just matched, and they, some of them had known that they wanted to do pediatrics from the beginning, but um, there was one uh, guy who was there who didn't decide until the end of his third year, which is really late. Um, in terms of that. So he kind of had to rework his whole application. And I think in some ways it kind of hurt him a little bit mm -hmm. because um, one of the things that you do is you set up audition rotations. So you want all your audition rotations to be in pediatrics and psychiatry in whatever you want to go into. And a part of that is um, to gain necessary skills. But main piece of it is that you want to show your interest and then you want to get a good letter of recommendation from one of those programs. Mm -hmm. So he kind of missed out on that because he decided uh, he wanted to do pediatrics kind of late in the game. That's sort of too bad though that he was penalized because he'll probably be a great pediatrician. Yeah. And he, so he came to it late. Yeah. It's, it's definitely unfortunate, but you know, he matched out a great program. He did. Okay. He did. Um, but he, 
I don't know what his academic record was, but um, he had had less interviews than the other people. And oh, I'm okay. speculating that, that that was why. That was why, yeah. So are you going to, over this next year, are you going to try to choose between your interests over your second year? <laughs> yeah, I think um, by the time you get to the clinical part, you people say you should be mostly decided. <laughs> really? Yeah, so... Um, I don't know. I have a lot of thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. This should be fun, right? Yeah, I think so. Who has inspired you? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so I worked with uh, this doctor, um, and he was, I think, the best doctor that I've ever worked with. Um, and he, it was really his bedside manner. So he worked in oncology, which is you know, he was telling people that they... You have six months to live. <laughs> you have two months yeah. to live. Yeah, he, he stayed away from that. But you're telling people things they don't want to hear. Right. Like, your cancer came back kind oh, of thing. Yeah. Um, and he uh, really had a way of making patients feel comfortable. And on top of that, uh, just make the mood lighter in terms in midst of all this stress and tension and... Um, he he just had like a very calming manner and then was really funny too. So maybe someone just threw up while they were getting chemo and then he'll come in and they'll be laughing until they cry. So he's, oh, he's that type of doctor. That's um, so cool. Yeah, he's really great. And I was also really impressed. Um, he worked in, all the time. He'd be there at 9 p.m. on a Friday and he would you know, call patients then to check in or ask about this and that. And I think um, he really went the extra mile. And hopefully I can live up to that in some regard. I don't <laughs> think I'll be all the way. but Well, that's the thing you were talking about earlier about balance in life. Right. Yeah. Right. But I, he sounds wonderful. He, he is. Yeah. <laughs> What are some of the major challenges you faced on this journey so far? Uh, I think the biggest hurdle is definitely getting in. Um, once you're in the system, they really want to keep you there. Um, and part of that is the school's image. You know, they it looks bad if a lot of kids drop out. Um, but part of it, too, is that they invest a lot of time in you. So they want you to finish and they want you to match well they want you to do well on your boards um so i think once you're in it's hard day to day but it's not the same type of um uncertainty you have when you're applying about are you going to get in or not and um a lot of people have to apply multiple times so i was lucky that i didn't have that nope you had a bunch of acceptances <laughs> but <laughs> i definitely had probably like the worst anxiety i've ever had in my life about whether or not I was going to get in somewhere. And uh, so what would you say to someone a year or two out of college who was applying? What would you say to them? What advice would you give? Um, that's a good question. Uh, well, as I was saying before, definitely try to make your application as good as you can. And then when you do have interviews, um, I practiced a lot for all my interviews. So I kind of knew the big questions they were going to ask, and I made sure I had a good answer. So if someone asks you, like, why do you want to go to this school, 
you need to have a good answer. <laughs> it can't be generic. Um, so a lot of things like that. I want to go here because you're going to accept me. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, you want to portray yourself <laughs> in a specific way. Um, and uh, also, I think you have to spin your story right because I'm sure they get tons of applications of people saying, like, I worked in this lab and I did this and I want to be a doctor. But really, um, you know, why you want to be a doctor specifically because they read 10,000 applicants and there's 200 seats you know they right you have to stand you out. have to stand out um so did you tell a story about the monkey escaping <laughs> i think i may have cut that out of my final <laughs> <laughs> um what are some of the major rewards so far and i know you're still early in the journey but what are some of the major rewards uh, so that's something that I've tried to be more mindful of because um, it's really hard to remember why you're doing it uh, when you're taking 68 exams and you're sitting in the library for 10 hours a day or more. Um, uh, so, sorry, what, what are the rules? <laughs> Um, you said I try to be mindful of them. I, I try to be mindful. So um, part of it is remembering why you're doing it in the first place. Um, and then part of it, too, is really uh, taking advantage of any opportunity you have to work with patients. Because um, once I had, like, a, an awful day, and then um, the next day I was able to give physical exams to high school boys for their high school boys and girls, I was in the boys section, um, for them to get cleared to play sports. And so this was like something your med school does for the community, but also it helps their students learn. Exactly. So we, part of the reason they do it is because these are generally healthy kids. So you don't find, um, major problems. Um, so I did this on like a Saturday morning. I got there at 6.30 a.m. I had two tests the next week. Um, you know, so I didn't necessarily want to go when I got up at 5.30. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> but when you get there and then, um, you know, I'm giving physical exams to these kids, I was like, okay, this is why I want to do it. And then we actually, um, I was listening to a boy's lungs and I heard wheezing so I called over a doctor and he listened and was like oh yeah that is abnormal um so oh that's cool yeah it was cool that like because part of the thing is when we practice these physical exams um you don't necessarily know what abnormal would sound like because you're practicing on healthy people so it was uh really cool being able to say like oh I do have some skills here. I'm not just going through the motions. <laughs> you have good osteopathic manipulation skills. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So being with those kids for a few hours really helped. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then on top of that, um, I always try to remember that, like, I am have an opportunity that a lot of other people don't have. And I wanted to go to medical school so badly. Um, so just remembering that, like, I... Am, I don't want to say blessed because that's such a word, but lucky to be in this position. Um, I'm then, getting a text from your dad. He's saying you have <laughs> mad skills. Oh, thanks, Dad. <laughs> and then, 
with that, um, so one of the things I always think about is anatomy, which um, uh, you're given a cadaver at the beginning of the year, and it's one of the first classes that you start with. And I struggled a lot with anatomy. Um, it was my hardest class by a landslide. Um, and it's, uh, I didn't like it. Um, but then whenever I had those thoughts of like, I hate anatomy, I uh, reminded myself that, you know, A, not everyone has the opportunity to look at the insides of a body. Um, and B, that someone gave their body to this, um, which is, I don't think I would want to do that, but that's such a... It's a tremendous gift. It's a tremendous gift, yeah. It's really selfless. It's very selfless. And then uh, on top of that, some of the frustrations in lab are maybe... I'm sorry, this might be gross. Go ahead. But we had to skin someone's palm, and... Ooh. <laughs> And, you know, we, after you're doing the initial cut, you have to peel back someone's flesh. And it was frustrating, but then we said, like, okay, this person lived a life, and it's hard because they have calluses, and maybe they enjoyed rock climbing or weightlifting, and this was why they have that. Um, so just thinking about things differently, I think has been something that I'm trying to be very aware of instead of just saying like mm -hmm. this sucks more reframing it and realizing why um, it's a really special opportunity. It is. That's a wonderful answer. Yeah. So we have about six minutes left. Um, how have you had to think outside the box in order to get to where you are and how we have to keep thinking outside the box in order to continue on this path? Um, so thinking outside of the box, uh, you know, when I was told that, like, maybe I should consider a different career, um, like what, you know, what did they want you to do? <laughs> I think they wanted me to go into research, which I don't think I would have enjoyed very much. Um, and then, uh, so we practice a lot on each other. Um, we do this about every other week, but you'll get an email. This is for our clinical medicine class. Um, you'll get an email and it says, on Thursday, you're going to pretend that you have XYZ. So uh, we had chronic pulmonary disease or asthma or urinary tract infection. Um, so you have to write up a doctor's note um, pretending that you have this condition. And then you are assigned a partner and they basically conduct an interview and try to figure out what you have. Um, and then you do the same for them. And this is something that's really hard when you don't necessarily know that much about clinical medicine yet. Mm -hmm. um, because at this point, we really know about biochem and physiology and anatomy, but we haven't put together the pieces. Um, so that's something that I'm really looking forward to in terms of just figuring out how it all fits together. Um, and I've always found that to be the most rewarding part of my education so far, is putting together pieces that um, don't necessarily, that you wouldn't necessarily put together. And I think that's something that's really important in medicine too. Um, 
well, we actually had this speaker a little while ago, and he was saying the most important thing you can realize is that you only see what you know. Mm. Um, so, and he was saying like, so he was actually talking about this rare condition, and he was saying, now you know it, so when you see it, maybe you'll realize it. Um, so that's something that is really interesting, I think. So that's one of the reasons why doctors have to continue to educate themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Why are you considering psychiatry? I told someone you were considering it, and he said, oh, she'll have a bus man's holiday when she comes home. <laughs> but why are you considering it? Uh, so when I um, was doing my master's, I wrote my thesis on schizophrenia, uh, which I think is an awful disease, but also one of the most interesting and fascinating diseases um, because it presents differently in every case and um, we don't really understand why you get it um, and it, it, how to it hits it. a lot of young adults right yeah so um, generally you get diagnosed in your early 20s late teens um, and it's we don't know why and there's so I wrote my thesis on one theory about why people get schizophrenia, which had to do with um, cytokine exposure during pregnancy. Oh, wow. So I really looked at how this event you have before you're even born leads to schizophrenia 20 years later. Um, so I think that, in a nutshell, like that example is specifically why I find psych so interesting is because... Um, you know, why Why does this happen? <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Well, we only have like two minutes left, so then do you have any last words, or how about a fun fact people wouldn't know about you? Fun fact. I got my driver's license at the age of 25. <laughs> <laughs> and now you drive wonderfully. Thank you. Well, Julia, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. You were amazing, wonderful. Thank you. I knew you would be. Thank you. So um, It was really fun being here today. Oh, good. And if people want to contact you, they can find you on Instagram, jmhoward428. And then your email is julia.mi.howard at gmail. So thank you, Julia. Thank you so much. So to all my listeners, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the this interview with the one and only Julia Howard, soon to be a doctor in a few years. <laughs> I enjoyed it. So um, come back next week. Thanks a bunch. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.